Let's uh, get right into the Word of God. So get your Bibles open. It's page 979 if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew. If you have your Bible, which I applaud you, I love you, I favor you. I'm sorry. I just, um, come on. You got to come to church with your Bibles. You got to mark them up. You got to put notes in them. I want you knowing your Word of God and uh, living them out. So it's Ephesians chapter 6, New Testament. Go to the right once you get to Matthew and just hit the parking brake when you get to Ephesians. All the way to the end, the sixth chapter. And while you're turning there, let me remind you, and some don't know this, so I will say this as if some may not understand this or be aware of this. We have a spiritual enemy. We actually have three of them. That'll come out a little bit later in this series. We have our flesh, which you're going to hear about tonight. Um, We have this world system which is corrupt and which it works to try to push us and press us, conform us into its mold. And then we've got the God of this age, the Bible says, the ruler. His name is Satan. And he's best known by that name. And by the way, and this is the part you may not know, his name means adversary and accuser. Now you want to get that into your mind because that will factor hugely into this message. Adversary and accuser. He's the adversary who does so much of his evil work by accusing God's people. And I want to uh, even bring that out in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. That's devil who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, Christian, I want you to hear that. Look at that verse. Just stare at it for a moment. This ought to put some, well, it ought to put some sober thinking into your mind for sure. Because look what he's doing. Who accuses them day and night before our God. Do you think the devil and his forces do not accuse you? That's all they do. They do it day and night. They don't take a weekend. They don't take a vacation. And it's why against these accusations that the breastplate of righteousness is needed. We need to learn to wear it. So I'm going to give you three simple questions. I'm going to try to answer them. The first one, very briefly, what was the Roman breastplate in their armor? And then we're going to look at what is the significance of the breastplate of righteousness. And then we're going to learn how to live that out. How do you live with that on? And we're going to get, everybody look at me for just a moment because this is, uh, this is important that I, I get us all on the same, kind of get in the huddle together. Because I'm about to call the plays three different ways. I'm going to teach you core, core, core theology. But it's not going to be boring. It's certainly not going to be complicated. It can be life-changing. This can anchor you through the accusations of the devil. You must grab this. You've got to learn this. You've got to take this, and you've got to get to the website. If you missed some of this, all my notes, I pretty much preach off of a transcript. All my notes are going to be up on that website by Tuesday. Just download it. Read through it. Learn it. Study on your own. Get in better preachers than I am. Just get it into your mind. Get their teaching in your soul. What I'm teaching you today is the core. 
This is how you weather the storm. This is how you wear the breastplate. So what was that breastplate in the Roman armor? Well, it, was, it covered from the neck down to the upper thighs. So if you just think about that, then all of a sudden you realize, well, man, it just protected basically your vital organs. That's why they wore it. Your lungs, your hearts, your intestines. It protected them from that killing blow. And it went through, by the way, a lot of developments in the Roman army. It really was at one point basically leather stitched together. And then they took slices of animal hooves or animal horns or pieces of metal and just overlaid that leather. That's the earliest version. They got a little bit better as they went. Got a very costly version, which was chain mail little ringlets of metal that were just ringed together. That was very expensive. A little bit less expensive was plate armor, super heavy, and by the way, did not work with flexibility needed in a battle. Didn't work well, at least. And then they had thirdly, or actually fourthly, if you count the leather, they had scale armor. Here, all they did was they just took overlapping bronze and iron scales, and that's how they made the scale armor. Now here's all of that you could forget. Here's what you need to know. At the base of that breastplate, down by the thighs, were all kind of hooks and rings. And the reason for them was that they tied and fastened the breastplate to the belt of truth. Well, they actually didn't call it the belt of truth. I'm skipping ahead. They tied it to the belt that we talked about last week. But what I did tell you last week is that the belt of truth unifies, ties, holds that whole armor together. Well, that was the way it was in the Roman, Roman military armor. That, that breastplate was anchored because when you're in battle and this thing's moving up and down, something's got to keep it tied to the belt so it doesn't get up over your face, up over your head, working up over your body out of position. This is what kept it anchored. That was the breastplate. But what's the significance of it? That's really the important part. What is the significance of the breastplate of righteousness? Now let's get into your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verse 14 with me if you would. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now if you have the NIV, it's going to change the grammar here. and It's going to lose something. And I'll explain that in a moment. The ESV, that's what I preach out of, the English Standard Version, it preserves that grammar as does the NASB, the King James, the New King James. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So where the enemy is trying to steal your joy and kill your hope and destroy your testimony, that's what he does. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy. So you've got to begin to think, okay, well, What's my thought life like? Do I battle with doubts in God's goodness? Do I battle with even wondering, am I, am I saved? I mean, how can I sin like I'm sinning and still be saved? Maybe I'm not saved. I know people, I know Christians that battle this their entire lives. Well, is it your emotions that the devil is attacking? You know, you seem full of fear, that anxiety. You're quick to be offended. You run after pleasure. All of those passions, all of those desires, those feelings, those emotions. 
Was it, is it your will that he is attacking? You know, those choices that you make that, that really creates a very inconsistent Christian walk. Some weeks you're really, really walking closely with the Lord and you're making right decisions and then all of a sudden you drift away from him and, and months later you wonder, where, where was I? What was I doing in making these decisions? See, the breastplate of righteousness protects our minds, our feelings, and our wills. Now, the reason I'm talking about that, because you might be thinking, if you're really into this sermon at this point, you might be thinking, well, why are you talking about thoughts? That's more like your helmet. Well, the Hebrew Christians, the Hebrew Jewish people, believed that your thinking and your feeling and your wills all came out of the very center of who you were, who you are, your heart. So really what this breastplate of righteousness is doing is protecting the most vital organ you've got, your spiritual heart. It's the center of you, Proverbs 4.23, out of which all of your life flows. If you've got a profanity problem, you've got a heart issue. If you've got a doubt and anxiety problem, you've got, you have a heart issue. If you have a drug problem, you've got a heart issue. If you've got problems in your marriage because you're selfish, you've got a heart issue. So Paul reminds us again, and this is where the NIV loses it, he reminds us again, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Remember I told you last week it's the same for this one. That's a grammatical Greek device that means you have to put it on. Nobody can put it on for you. I cannot put it on for you through these sermons. You cannot put it on for the ones that you love. Parents, you cannot put this on for your children. You cannot worry about school, and so before they go away in the morning, you don their armor for them. They have to put it on. You have to train them, teach them how to put it on. But the breastplate consists, well, look what it's called, of righteousness. And we need to understand, by the way, that there are two meanings of that word. You ready? Now we're dipping into core theology, and this is... Really super interesting. It's not going to be boring, I don't think. And I think it's going to be extremely easy to comprehend. Here's the righteousness of God. I'm going to define it for you so wonderfully easily. It is the perfect union between who God is and what God does. Listen, you're going to read this term in the Bible hundreds and hundreds of times. So you you need to know how to define it. It's the union between who God is and what God does. It's, by, this, by the way, the same word for justice. Did you know that? That when the Bible calls God righteous or talks about the righteousness of God, it's talking about the justice of God. So who God is and what God does is always just, now hear it, and right. That's why right is the core of righteous. See, when you talk about righteousness, you're talking about who God is, is what God does, and what he does is always right. It is always just. And we see this marriage between righteousness and justice brought together in Isaiah. He does it absolutely brilliantly, and I'm going to read it for you. You'll see it up on the screen. So justice is driven back. Well, if you're going to drive justice back, you just drove righteousness back. And righteousness stands at a distance. And that means they're not belted, they're not hooked to the belt of truth. 
Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. So really what we're extrapolating here, what we're getting out of this, is if you don't have the breastplate on, you don't have justice in your life, and it's not tethered to the belt of truth. Truth is nowhere to be found. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. Now, this is mind-blowing. Listen to this. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate. I mean, this is amazing. God himself wears this armor. God himself put the breastplate of righteousness on. He did it way before we're ever going to do it. Now, we're referring, Isaiah is, to Jesus, who donned this breastplate, now look what it says, as his own arm worked salvation for him. All right, now you remember, I told you we're at core theology. You got to get this. This is absolutely, utterly important. Let me, let me tell you something. If you're here right now, and you know, I mean, you know, you know, you know, you know you're not a Christian, and I can't talk you into that. That spirit of God's got to draw you to that. So you know you're not a Christian. And right now, so far, you're kind of a little bit curious. You're seeking a little bit, but you're not really sure, do I need to become a Christian? Or, scenario two, you are a Christian, but you really haven't gone anywhere in your life. Come on, just be honest. You've not really progressed in your sanctification. You've really, you don't really enjoy the Bible, And so you're not learning. You're not growing in your knowledge of God, and you're wondering, why am I really not growing in my Christian walk? Well, for both scenarios, what I'm going to tell you, well, it's really important. Salvation in Isaiah was the critical need. His own arm worked salvation for him. How did he do it? He donned the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. Isaiah said something created a breach with God. Justice is driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Something has pushed people away from God. In fact, he goes on to say in uh, verse 2 of that chapter, your iniquities have separated you from God. Big word, iniquities, right? Just means sins. In fact, he's going to explain it. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear For your offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Three words, they all mean the same thing. Sins, offenses, iniquities. And listen, here's what Isaiah is saying. The end product of all of our sins, offenses, and iniquities is it drives God away. It drives us away from him. It creates a breach It separates us. And the breach maker, sin, is the opposite of righteousness. And it's a fatal problem for all humanity. See, we're born rebels. Now listen, I don't really think I need to convince you that. Well, I actually might need to convince you of that because most of us know, in fact, I've never ever in all of my years of ministry ever encountered anybody that truly argued that they've never sinned. I have encountered people who are Wesleyan in their theology that think they can become perfected in this walk and sin no more, 
but they will acknowledge they used to sin. I've never encountered, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, anybody that's ever really with a straight face told me, Tim, I've never sinned. We know it. Our consciences beat us up. We know we're sinners. What I have to convince people is that that little baby, the Dave and Lisa's son, just burst at 4 a.m. this morning, is already a sinner. Oh, I know that, that hurts. I know. I'm not even mocking you. That hurts to hear that. I mean, you're holding that precious little baby, and here's evil Pastor Tim telling you that that little baby's got a sin nature. Well, if you don't believe that, then try parenting that little baby in a year and a half. And you've never taught the baby how to sin. You never read the baby a sin story with pictures before they went to bed. It just comes natural. There's a proclivity. There's a tendency. There's a bent in every human being to sin. And it creates a breach. We are born rebels. We are unrighteous from the start. We're at odds with God. And there's the breach. Now, I've just said as clearly as I, I think I know how to say that we're born with a sin nature. We're born fallen beings that are already in a breach. Now, let me take you to the other side of the breach for a moment where God is. And let's say that somehow, I don't, it's not possible, but let's just dream for a moment. Somehow, you could take the Lawrence Berkeley Electron microscope, the most powerful microscope we've got, $27 million to make it. And somehow we put God under it, or even a portion of God under it, and we bounce electrons all over him. There would not, to the most infinite level, be found one single contaminant, one speck of moral defilement, one sin. There would not be found any of it. He is impeccably pure. There is nothing evil in God. If God is to do what he is, remember, that's righteousness. That's the, that's the definition of it. If he is to do what he is, then not only can God not ignore our sin, he must punish the sinner. God would actually, now listen, this is interesting, that God would actually be unrighteous if he ever, even one time, gave a pass to sin. By the way, I've learned this as a parent. I have four children. Most of them are all grown up now, but I've got four kids. And if I don't treat them equally, well, then they get upset, rightfully so. So if I give a pass to Andy at age 12, his current age, that I never gave for Matthew, Aaron, and Carissa, then they bring it to my attention. See, God is utterly consistent. He has never once given a pass to sin. He's never said, you know what? I know you had a rough day. I know you just got laid off. Yeah, I can understand why you just got drunk. I can understand why you dropped the F-bomb. You know what? No biggie. God's never done that. Not even once. It matters every single time. See, sin is intolerable to him. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? You know what lawlessness is? Well, probably, if, unless you've studied it, you don't. It just means sin. That's exactly what John says in 1 John 3, 4. Lawlessness is sin. It's the opposite of righteousness. So sin is intolerable to him. Now here, are you listening to this? It is a blight. It is the greatest blight possible against his absolute purity. It is high treason. And rebellion against our creator earns for us the just right sentence of death. Now I want you to, I'm going to explain that. Now get a hold of this, Christian, because when you're explaining this to the unbeliever, you're going to need to know what I'm going to tell you. This is the easiest way that I know how to explain why God is so angry over sin. Why he would condemn a sinner who will not turn to Jesus for salvation and put him in eternal Hell. Why would God do that? Well, one way you can begin to understand that is that with sin, the punishment fits not only the crime. Now listen, the punishment fits not only the crime, but whom the crime was against. Well, this will make sense, a little bit at least, I think. If you punch your neighbor, the law will punish you. If you punch a police officer who comes to intervene, the law will punish you greater. If you walk up to the president of the United States and you punch him, listen, you've just received the maximum sentence under law. Do you see how each one, you punched three different times, but three different people, and the sentence got greater depending on who it was that you hit. See, each of us, you and I, have punched God right in the face repeatedly, defying his just and righteous decrees. So how can sinful people then get near God? What can, what can cross this divide? What can close the breach with a perfect holy being such as God? Well, now comes the incredibly terrifically horrific news that will lead to the incredibly terrific news. It takes death to close the breach. Well, you might be thoroughly confused, so I'll explain it from Scripture, Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. None. Well, you might be arguing, then why didn't Jesus just cut his wrist a little bit, throw it on the altar, and put a bandage, bandage on it, and go on about his day? There's the blood. It's not about the particles of blood. It's not about plasma and white cells and red blood cells and platelets that brings about salvation and closes the breach. It's not the physical properties of blood. It means that somebody who is innocent has to die as a substitute for those who are guilty. See, in order to save us, Somebody's got to rescue us off of death row. That's where your rebellion put you. For the wages of sin is death. Someone has to die in our place. Someone, though, it can't be me. You know why it can't be me? Man, I'm just as bad a sinner as you. My death is absolutely unmeritorious. It would not provide what Pastor Matthew earlier said, propitiation. It cannot provide a payment. Listen, it's not because 
we haven't done enough good works to atone for our guilt, all of our good works are like counterfeit money. They don't even get accepted by God's bank because all of our good works are flawed. Not one of your good works, not one of mine, has ever made it to the perfect righteous standard of God. The very best that we've done has fallen short. The only candidate among all humanity that ever could fit the bill, that could all meet the requirement that someone could die in our place and close the breach with his death is Jesus Christ. And he put, Isaiah says, on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And he went to war against sin and against the devil. How did he do it? What did he do? He willingly was crucified on the cross. Are you hearing this? In our place. To take away the sin and remove the sentence of death for anyone who would believe on him. And do you know that at the moment of belief that something miraculous happens in your life? Your sin, all of it, in totality, your past sins, the ones you just did yesterday or even today or even right now because you're wondering, is this guy ever going to shut up and move to the second, third point? All of your sins, even the ones you'll do tomorrow and 50 years from now if you're still alive, every single one of your sins was put onto Christ when he was on that cross. Now listen, and all of his righteousness was transferred into your account. We call it theologically imputed righteousness, or more simply, positional righteousness. This is who we are. The very moment you put your faith in Jesus, God treats Jesus as if he committed every one of your sins, and then he begins to treat you instantly as if you did all of the righteous things that Jesus did. This is what it means for, for our sake, 2 Corinthians 5. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It's called the great exchange. All of our sins to Jesus in his account, all of his righteousness to us in our account, all happening the very second you put your faith in Jesus and you are made righteous your position with God is that you are as righteous as Jesus. See, the Father's wrath poured out on Jesus and his mercy poured out on us. Now, you got to hear this. This wasn't a sleight of hand trick that dupes God into not noticing our sins. For all the way back to the garden, God allowed an innocent substitute to die for the guilty, but the sacrifice all the way through the, all the, way through the Old Testament was an animal. It was never an innocent, sinless person. Now, what do the animal sacrifices do? You might be wondering. What they did was they provided a very temporary covering over a repentant sinner, that that, and that covering was abolished the very moment you next sinned. It might last 10 seconds. It might last a few hours. 
But all of those sacrifices, all of that bloodshed, all of those sheep and lambs killed were substitutes for repentant sinners, providing a temporary cover of righteousness so that you could have fellowship with God, but it went away again. It is only the sinless lamb of God who was crucified on that cross that the moment you believe in him, you are made righteous forever. The next time you sin, you don't lose your imputed. You don't lose your position of righteousness. It doesn't dim like your headlights when a car is coming. Oh, I've sinned five times this week. Man, I'm low on the quotient of righteousness. You are still pumped full of the righteousness of Christ. God sees you now as if you are as righteous as Jesus. But I told you that there are two meanings of the word righteousness. It's, there's the being, which I just spent a lot of time telling you. And there's the doing, which I'm about to tell you about. And Satan, now listen, you got to hear this, Christian. If you're going to wear this breastplate, the reason I went to all of that effort to tell you about being imputed position righteousness is so that you can understand what I'm about to tell you. Satan cannot Take away your righteousness. You are secure in Jesus, but he can impact your practice of that righteousness. He can't take away the doing righteousness, but he can certainly interfere with the being righteousness, the practice of righteousness. And he wants to create a breach, Christian, between our position and our practice who we are, and how we live. He wants there to be a breach. See, righteousness is who you are, is how you live. Satan can interfere with that. I'm gonna show you how he interferes with that. But the way he does it is by drawing us back into rebellious, cosmic, treasonous sin. And the breastplate of righteousness, biggest statement I think I'm gonna make in the at least in the last 30 seconds, the, the breastplate of righteousness, it protects our vital organs spiritually so that we can live out who we are. Because we are made right with God in our position, we must live right with God in our practice. You see, to live any other way, friends, Christian, I hope you hear this, to live any other way, is to make an opening for the devil to capture you into sin. Now, I'm afraid that some of you didn't hear that. I mean, I know you heard it, but listening means, see, that's even God telling you, listen, uh, that's presumptuous. I think I shouldn't do that. What you need to know, listening means you're hearing in order to put it into practice. This is why Adam suffered the indictment of God in Genesis 3. Because you listen to your wife in the Hebrew with the intent of obeying her. Well, if you're listening to me right now, you are hearing me with the intent of putting it into your practice. The devil wants to create a breach between who you are and how you live. The breastplate is designed to prevent that. Because to live any other way than who you are is how you live, it's to make an opening and an invitation for the devil to come conquer you. By the way, if you went to Japan ever, there's a temple there to the fox god. 
And the fox god offers you a way to sin. You just throw some money down into his coffers. He offers you a way to sin and get away with it by allowing you to receive forgiveness from him in advance of the sin that you're going to commit. That's the fox god in Japan. Christian, let me ask you, now come on, be, be rigid with your own soul for a moment. Do you treat God like the fox god? I mean, I really want this pleasure. I know God's going to forgive me later, so I'll borrow future forgiveness to pay for present sin. And can I possibly suggest that likely every one of us has done that? When you go into Satan's territory as a willing traveler, do not be surprised to land in his prison. You never had the breastplate on, not when you were traveling. Do you remember the story where Queen Helen was captured and taken to the city of Troy? And the Greeks pursued over oceans, those abductors, they pursued all the way back to the city of Troy. And for 10 years, they unsuccessfully tried to overcome them. But finally, they left, seemingly giving up. Now it's likely this is a legend. They seemed to have given up, the Greeks did. But before they left, they built a large wooden horse and they left it. You remember the story. They left it outside of Troy's gates one night. And when the sun came up, all the Trojan uh, citizens looked out. And here's this massive wooden soldier. And piqued by curiosity, feeling like they have conquered and withstood the enemy, they opened their gates and they wheeled that horse right inside their city. They didn't know that there was a whole bunch of Greek soldiers hiding inside that horse. And at night, those soldiers now inside Troy overcame the guards at the gates, opened them up so that their army, who had come circled around, could come back in, and they conquered the city. Now you see, Christian, the enemy within the flesh, that's that part of us that rebels against God, the enemy within us let the enemy outside of us in. And it overcame, or it can overcome, what was seemingly impregnable to you. See, if your rebellious flesh lets the enemy in, you may never come back from being conquered. Now note, I didn't say you will lose your salvation. What I said is you may never come back from being conquered. There are Christians who die addicted to porn. There are Christians who die addicted to drink and drugs. There are Christians who die addicted to sex. You may never come back if he conquers. Unrighteousness and disobedience, I hope you're hearing me. I hope I'm hearing me. They open that gate into our hearts, and the enemy has found a way to get inside our hearts and create a stronghold. And they are addictions, they are shame, they are despair, they are misery, and they are their like. Which is why Paul says in Romans 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its Passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Why, he's, why is he saying this? Because he knows the moment you begin in presenting your body to sin, you've just let the devil in and you're on your way to being conquered. 
But there is a way to defend yourself against the attack of the enemy, and the breastplate of unrighteousness is the key. I want to show you this in action. So if you could try to find the second to the last book of the Old Testament, it's called Zechariah. If you could turn there right now, it's the second book from the end. Malachi is the only one after it. Get to chapter 3. I want to show you what righteousness does when the enemy attacks. How do we wear the breastplate of righteousness in battle? Third and final point, and this will be brief. Now, if you don't have your Bible in front of you, I'm going to put the whole passage up on that screen for you to see it. And Zechariah chapter 3 opens with Israel. Now, you've got to hear the background. You've got to get the context. It, Israel has returned from Babylon. They were conquered by Babylon. They were enslaved by Babylon. They were taken up there for 70 years. God frees them miraculously. Many of them come back to Jerusalem, to the land of the Jews. They've returned from Babylon. And Satan hates losing any battle. He is furious. He wanted to keep God's people in bondage. And Christian, if you're in an addiction, if you're in bondage, you are right where the devil wants you, but you've got a way out. The Jews had returned. They were going to restore Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the temple of God. And Satan doesn't want that. He hates the worship of God. He hates the centering of God's people upon their God. So he begins to attack to prevent that. And we've got this vision that Zechariah, the author, has. And in this vision, you'll see it, Joshua, the high priest, he represents, as all high priests do, all the people of God. So the, the vision is going to focus on this battle between Satan and Joshua. It's really not between Satan and Joshua. It's between Satan and the angel of the Lord. And the vision is going to center on this. And in the balance are all of God's people represented by their high priest. His name is Joshua. And it's a battle in the heavenly places. Joshua, get the imagery, get the drama, get the scenery up on stage almost. They're in a courtroom. Joshua, the high priest, he is standing before the angel of the Lord. That name is Jesus. The angel of the Lord is Jesus. And he's standing like, pretend where I am right now in this pulpit. He's standing here and to his right side is Satan who likely is pointing at Joshua when he speaks, but speaking to Jesus. You don't stand before the throne of God and speak as if God's not there. He commands all of attention, even Satan's. And he's accusing Joshua. This is what his name means. You remember, adversary and accusing. He is the prosecuting attorney. He's, tr he's offering proof of Joshua's guilt. And what we're going to find out is that the proof is true. Joshua really is guilty, for he is dressed in filthy rags, which are symbolic of sin, offenses. Now, I want you to notice as you skim through this, not once does Joshua speak, Christian, your best position is not relying on your own defense. It will not overcome the devil. You will lose if you're defending your own self. You have no defense. You have no innocence. If you were in innocent and sinless from birth, you'd have a defense. 
but you don't have one, I don't have one, so it's best not to make a defense, but watch what happens next. It's the same exact thing that's happened for you, Christian. It's the same thing that's happened for me. Jesus rebukes Satan. Yes, he acknowledges Joshua's sinfulness. How does he do that? He says, this, isn't this man a brand that I have plucked out of the fire of God's wrath? In other words, my wrath put him and the people of God, my people, into Babylonian captivity. But I have plucked them out. I have brought them out of bondage. I have brought them out of captivity. And I have brought them home to be with me. And sinners were all bound, all sinners, by the way, are bound up, exiled into sin. Every one of them deserve God's wrath. But, and this is the good news of the gospel, the grace of salvation plays out in this vision. Look what Jesus does. He removes Joshua's clothes. He removes Joshua's sins. And he dresses him in the pure garments of righteousness. This is imputed positional righteousness. I hope you can hear me, but it's not enough. Now, let me tell you something. The breastplate of righteousness is not made out of imputed righteousness. It's made out of the practical righteousness. It's made out of when we who are righteous, made righteous by Christ, live in holy obedience to our God by his grace. That's the power of the breastplate of righteousness. We can have that breastplate because of what Jesus has done, because the Father has made us righteous, but the defense that we have is not the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. The defense is I'm walking with my God. The enemy within me is now opening up a gate for the enemy without. He cannot get in to conquer. I'm saying no to ungodliness by the grace of God through the power of the Spirit of God. So it's not enough, Joshua. So Zechariah, very alert, says somebody put a turban on his head. Yeah, he's dressed in all the garment of the righteous priest. He's got all the imputed righteousness on him, but he needs something on his head. He's got to be restored to be able to live out who he is. He's the priest. My people are my people. Put a turban on their head so they know who they are in me and they can live out who they are. See, that's practical righteousness. See, I'm sure there's likely some here right now who are struggling, having done some pretty ter terrible things in your life. And maybe, honestly, maybe you're even guilty of doing criminal things. Maybe you've given up your purity and you're not married. Maybe you've had an abortion. And the devil will bring that up over and over and over in your life. He wants every divorced Christian to believe that they are now a second-rate believer. He wants every woman who's ever had an abortion to live under the scornful scowl of God forever. He wants that hurt that you inflicted on another person to haunt you with guilt the rest of your life. He wants the abuse that you suffered from somebody else to leave a stone on your a stain on your life that you don't think will ever get expunged. Do you have your breastplate of righteousness on? 
because those are killing blows to your heart. They will prevent you from standing strong against the devil. That's how he gets through the cracks and convinces you that like Joshua, you are dressed in filthy rags and you need to speak back, not of your own defense, but my God took my filthy rags off and he put brand new clothes on me. He made me as righteous as Jesus and by his grace, I am living it out in obedience to him. And yeah, I stumbled, devil, but I've got a God that the moment I come back to him in 1 John 1, 9, and I confess what I did, he washes me, he cleanses me, and he makes me restored in my righteousness. And you can say to Satan, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Christian, don't let the enemy inside of you, your flesh, open the gate for the enemy outside. If you do, you will be conquered. You gotta tighten up that belt. And you gotta remember, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now I'm almost done and I'm gonna read that again. This is something you must memorize. Come on, Christian, get this in your mind. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know what's happened? Just ignore the lights. I'm telling you what, this whole, I warned you when we began this series. Our tape deck is broken. We haven't been able to video a sermon. We won't be for another couple weeks, probably. Lights are flashing. Listen. I know where that's probably likely coming from. He hates what you're hearing. And you're not hearing my words. You're hearing the word of God explained. And he fears it. But I'm going to tell you, and he's going to hate hearing this, that, that Jesus has stripped the devil of his authority in your life. He can no longer act out his power on you without permission from God. So how do you put it on? I'm going to give you three things. It's going to take me two minutes. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. How do you do it? Here you go. You ready? First, confess your sins. Come on. you got to confess your sins. When God shows them to you, you don't make light of them. You don't think, well, you know what? Compared to that person, this is not really a big thing. You confess them as if it is what it is. It is high treason against a God that died for you. You confess them because they interrupt your fellowship with God. They make a breach in your fellowship, but your relationship with him is intact. It's steady and it's secure, but man, you're not on talking terms. You and God are not on talking terms. He won't listen to your prayers if there's sin in your heart. You got to turn from them or the devil's got an enemy within opening up gates for his strategies. Number two, claim who you are in Christ. Every time the devil attacks you by pointing, you point him to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You point him to the new clothing that you are wearing. You are as righteous as Jesus. Even if you don't believe it, you claim it until you get it. Because that's the truth. You, know, you need to start believing it because he's pretty good at putting holes in your doubt or putting holes in your confidence with doubt. But that's how you tie the breastplate to the belt of truth. It's how you keep it secure. Claim who you are in Christ. I am a new creation. 
And third and final, God provided for you the power. He has provided you for the, the army, but you must put it on in holy living. You cannot live in the world and think that you're going to be walking and living out righteousness. You cannot do it. You got to put on the new self, Ephesians says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You put it on and you live it out so that who you are, child of, of God, sister and brother of Christ, is who you, how you live. Who you are is how you live. So here's my final thing I'm going to tell you. Hook the breastplate to the belt of truth. Know who you are in Christ. Stand your ground against the devil and obey your God by his grace. Amen? Amen. Let's walk out of here knowing who we are. Let's pray.